This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. And here we come to what this lesson tonight is all about, into one creation under Christ. And that story of how God accomplishes that purpose is to me an astounding and altogether amazing and thrilling, I guess it would be a word you could use, story that far surpasses anything that man could possibly imagine in his boldest imaginations. Adam was the created as the head here. With all that means, the federal head, the organic head, of the earthly creation. We talked about all that. He was created in the image of God, in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. He was created as prophet and priest and king in God's earthly creation. He had that responsible position where the whole creation was organically united in one, through Adam, to God. But that omitted the heavenly creation. And in the heavenly creation, of course, things were quite different. There was a head there, too, in the heavenly creation, and that head was Satan, the highest of the angels, and the prince of the angelic world. It was here that sin began, not here. And when sin began here, it was introduced here into the earthly creation by no less a person than Satan himself. His original intent, as I reminded you, was to take God's heavenly creation from God by storming the throne of God with the angels that fell with him to depose God and to set himself upon that throne that failed. And so he conspired to make the earthly creation, not just this globe on which we live, this one planet on which we live, his domain, but the entire universe he desired to make his own where he would establish his kingdom. And in order to do that, because he did not have direct access to the earthly creation, he had to enlist Adam as his ally and head and representative, which he was successful in doing, so that Through man, Satan rules in this earthly creation with the intent of making the creation the kingdom of darkness. That explains, as we noticed last week, the organic development of sin. Now, when God worked to attain his purpose in Christ, he did so by means of the history of these two creations. Heaven has a history and earth has a history. The history of heaven is a very significant history and and very interesting history of which Scripture has a few things to tell us. Call your attention to the fact in the first place that it was in heaven as a part of heaven's history that Satan fell. That must have been an extraordinarily disruptive and disturbing event in heaven in the angelic world 
that Satan conspired against God with those demons who agreed with him and attempted in heaven to wrest the throne away from God. What a traumatic, what a uh, heaven-shaking event that must have been that sent its tremors throughout the entire heavenly creation and affected the entire angelic world. Something so awful, something so astounding as rebellion against God in heaven could not have left heaven unaffected. Now, if I may continue with that history for just a moment, although Satan did not succeed, and although now he set his sights on making the universe his kingdom, nevertheless, for the four, first 4,000 years of earthly history, Satan had access to heaven. He came and went apparently as he pleased. He was there when he felt like being there. But his purpose was, in going to heaven, to challenge God's right to control history in the way God did here in this creation. And that's the story of Christ, of course. Immediately after Adam's fall, God made the promise of Christ. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, speaking to Satan, thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head. Thou shalt bruise his heel. Satan knew what God meant by the seed of the woman. Satan knew with absolute certainty. And so he conspired to prevent that from happening. And the history of the earthly creation is really when everything else is said and done and you put aside all the history books that have been written by men and you read the history book of God's Word, that explains everything that happened in the first 4,000 years of the world's history. Satan, in an effort to prevent God from sending Christ because he knew that Christ was certainly the one who would be his destruction, his defeat, his total defeat. Nevertheless, as God realized that promise, God himself began to penetrate this barrier in strange ways, such strange ways, mind you, that wicked men are intent, absolutely intent, on denying that this ever happens. And the history of, of the thought of the world is the history of desperate attempts to deny that heaven, as it were, invades earth through this otherwise impenetrable barrier so that the promise was spoken not only to Adam in paradise, but angels come bursting through from time to time to do strange things here in the world and to say strange things and to help along these beleaguered people who represent God's cause in the world. And God himself reaches down through that barrier and does very, very strange things like, for example, sending a flood and preserving eight people and, 
and about, what is it, 15,000 animals in an ark and making walls of Jericho fall flat except for one section of wall where a prostitute lives. The world don't, doesn't want these invasions of foreign forces that come into this earthly creation. And so, you know, the history of thought is the history of attempting to deny miracles, to deny the reality of angels, to deny the reality of another world that exists. Why does the world do that? Because they're scared silly by the very idea that heaven constantly breaches that barrier But that's all in anticipation, you see, of another event. And the result of it is that those who on this earth belong to God's people are also taken out of this earth into heaven through the barrier. Something unheard of, something impossible, something, well, Paul calls it a mystery. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Behold, I show you a mystery. Mysterious things are happening. Things that can't be explained in any earthly terms because heaven is invading earth. That's why Satan went to heaven in that first 4,000 years to contest God's right to invade his domain, as it were. I'm king here. Heaven has no business in this area because, said Satan, I have succeeded in gaining man to my side. Man is my representative in this world. He's king and prophet and priest under me. He does my will. Stay out. And when God took saints to heaven, Satan hurried up, hurried up to say, they don't belong there. They have no right to be there. They're mine because of my success in persuading man to cooperate with me in making this creation my kingdom. That's why you could find Satan in heaven with Job, the time of Job. God introduces the discussion, you know, I always like that. Have you noticed Satan, my servant Job? Have you paid attention to him? Yeah, I've seen him, says Satan. No wonder he serves you. Pays, pays to serve you. Take away everything you've given him and then see what he does. So God said, all right, try it, try it. But there was Satan in heaven contesting, contesting Job as a representative of God's cause. The same thing was true, Jude tells us, with the body of Moses and so on and so forth. Always there. Heaven, I know heaven was a better place than earth in the Old Testament, but it wasn't all that great a place to be with Satan roaming around. In Revelation 12, he's even called the accuser of the brethren because that was his main occupation in heaven, to accuse the saints who have gone there. But in the meantime, they were being gathered. First, Abel. I often wonder to myself, poor Abel. There he sat all alone in heaven. What a lonely business that must have been. But gradually, God brought more and more people into heaven so that Abel had some some company. And that host in heaven swelled into a mighty host in spite of everything Satan attempted to do. That was the history of heaven. War in heaven, Jude says. War. Michael and his angels 
fighting against Satan and his angels. In the meantime, history went on in this earth too, corresponding to the history in heaven. But in this earth, it was all downhill because of the development of the first sin of Adam in the history of the world, except for the fact that this invasion of heavenly forces into this earth was of such a kind that God was saving from the history, from the generations of Adam, a church which he had chosen to himself from all eternity. Church was being gathered. Not only was that church being gathered, but that church served as, as, what shall I say, the heralds in this world of the ultimate victory of God's purpose in Christ. Everyone, Enoch walked with God, but he was a preacher of righteousness. He condemned the world. Noah spoke of judgment and built an ark saying the world's going to be destroyed. Every one of those that belong to the church said boldly, without any explanation, other than the fact that God had reached down to make them his own people. We really represent God's cause in heaven. That's what we're doing here on the earth. We don't go along with all this stuff that Satan is king here. No, no. God is king. And as the world develops in sin and apostasy, we want to testify to the fact that this creation is going to be destroyed, but God's cause is going to emerge triumphant. That's what they all said. Because although they were of the earth, and although they had never been to heaven, they were nevertheless sold by the power of God made a part of that heavenly creation that they witnessed to it and spoke of it and preached about it and went there when they died. And that was an altogether an amazing thing which neither Satan nor the wicked world could possibly tolerate. And so for 4,000 years, that, those two histories went on. And there were times without number when the few faithful that were left must have shaken their heads and said, this is it, this is it. Can't go on. Church is gone. Think of Elijah under the juniper tree. I only am left. They have torn down thine altars. They have killed thy prophets. They have slain thy people with the sword. I'm all that's left. Think of Malachi. Then those who feared the Lord spoke often with each other, and their names were written in a book of remembrance, that little handful. Think of the eight that were finally taken into the ark. The cause of Satan seemed repeatedly to have gained the victory. Nevertheless, all of this, of which I have spoken, was under the sovereign control and direction of God and the realization of his own sacred and eternal purpose in order that he might realize his purpose in Christ. There were no mistakes anywhere along the line. And if only those saints, when in their hours of deepest discouragement, could have looked at things from heaven's perspective, it would have been different. Elijah under the juniper tree had to be taken by the scruff of the neck, you know, and shaken by God. Elijah, what are you doing here? Well, this and this and this and this. And it's all wrong. And everything's hopeless. And 
Everything is going to pot. No, no, it isn't. No, no, it isn't. Everything's on schedule. Everything's happening exactly the way it ought to happen. There isn't one thing going wrong. And you mustn't feel so sorry for yourself, and you mustn't think that you're the only one left. I have reserved unto myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Get to work, man! Don't sit there moaning and groaning and feeling sorry for yourself. Everything is happening just as it ought to happen. Because always it has to be this way in order that it may be shown that God is the one who does all things. And so Christ came from Mary. From Mary. And he came as the second Adam, you see. Adam was an image bearer of God. That was a wonderful thing. He was created in the image of God. In knowledge, true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Was Christ created in the image of God? No, he wasn't. What does Colossians 1 say about him? In that marvelous passage which describes Christ. In whom, verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood. You might want to keep your Bibles open to Colossians 1 because I'm going to be coming back to this. In whom we have redemption through the, through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God. Not created in the image of God, but he is, he is. Himself the image of the invisible God. That's far, far higher than Adam could ever be. That's Hebrews 1, 2. Same thing. God who in, at sundry times and in diverse manners spake to us in times past, spake in times past by the prophets unto the fathers, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Express image of his person. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty of God. He's not image bearer, Christ isn't, he is the image of God. Why? Because he is the eternal son of God. The second person of the Holy Trinity who possesses in himself the whole of the divine being who came into this world through the barrier. There he was. The word. Read John 1. I don't know how you can read it without getting a, a, a chill running up and down your spine. In the beginning was the Word, John says, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. By Him were all things made, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh of all things. The Word, who is God, by whom all things were made, became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, John says. And we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The wonder of the incarnation. Adam was given 
prophet, priest, and king in paradise. Christ was eternally appointed by God to be the one prophet and priest and king over all the works of God. For as, as Hebrews points out, he wasn't a priest after the order of Aaron. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, whose office is an eternal office, for it has no beginning and no end. That's Christ, whose office is therefore far, far superior to that of Adam. But here he was in the world for 33 and a half years. The, the barrier had been breached. Then, as the climax of his work, there was the cross on Calvary. And from an earthly point of view, if you had been there at the cross, all you would have seen, of course, was a man that looked like us in every respect, who died just in the same way as those two thieves died that were crucified on either side of him. And yet all sorts of things were happening in heaven. The moment when Christ died on the cross, for one thing, there were strange things on earth, too, which no one could quite explain. There was darkness on the Calvary for three hours. And at the moment of Christ's death, there was a terrible earthquake. And Christ died in a most peculiar way. He died at the peak of his power and strength so that even the centurion was moved to explain, exclaim, this is the Son of God. Can't explain it in any other way. But nevertheless, that cross was absolutely something that did not belong entirely to this earth. In fact, in a certain sense of the word, that cross belonged to hell. Not that Christ, while he was hanging on the cross, bodily went to hell, but as our catechism makes clear, he suffered all the torments of hell. God was pouring out his wrath upon his only begotten son from heaven upon the one who hung on the cross. You can hardly stand to think about it. I can't. God abandoning God. Think of that once. God forsaking God. That's what was happening there on Calvary. God driving his own son down into the depths of hell until at last Christ himself was so overwhelmed by the sheer horror of it that he hardly knew what was happening and could not understand why such awful agony was necessary. That was the cross. Heaven was acting on the Calvary. What happened here on earth wasn't all that much, not any different than was happening to the thieves from an earthly point of view. But heaven was acting. Heaven was acting at Calvary. And it was exactly by means of that cross that this barrier that had existed there from the very beginning was really smashed because Christ's work of bearing the wrath of God Perfect work. Perfect. And that was sealed in the resurrection. Christ was buried right here in this world, in Joseph's garden, as a part of the history of this present creation, in a geographical locale that if you knew where it was, you could visit today. But at the same time, the resurrection really did not take place here only, but also in heaven. I remember years ago on an Easter morning, I was listening to a radio speaker. I don't recall who he was. It doesn't make any difference. But he bemoaned the fact in the course of his radio address that 
The Polaroid camera had not yet been invented at the time when Christ arose because otherwise it would have been possible to take pictures of him and develop them instantaneously as he emerged from the grave. What utter sheer nonsense. Christ did, yes, he arose here because Joseph's grave was here. But he didn't come out the door through which his body had been carried by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. That wasn't the door from which he emerged. That door from which he emerged was a door that opened in heaven. If you had been in heaven with all those saints, then you would have been able to see the resurrection. If you had been here, all you would have seen was that if you had been standing right there at the moment of the resurrection, one moment there was a body wrapped in clothing and the next moment it was gone. That's all you would have seen. You wouldn't have been able to see what happened. Because the grave, you see, throughout all of this history was the door that yawned open and through which man, because of his sin, went to hell. That was the only door to the grave. How do you explain that they went, the saints went to heaven? Well, that's exactly what Satan says. These, these people don't have any business there. They're part of my domain. And God said, never mind, there's another day coming. That's why I'm taking them to heaven. Satan says, I'll keep him. I'll keep Christ from coming. God says, no, you won't. No, you won't. I'll see to it that he comes. And he came. And so, instead of emerging instead of going to hell through the grave, as we all do and would if it were not for Christ. Christ couldn't, you see. How, how could he go to hell when he died? He had been there already. He had conquered hell and destroyed its power. We die, we go to the grave, we go to hell. He went to hell and then died and went to the grave. And so because of the perfection of his cross, the only door that opened for Christ was the door that opened in heaven. He broke through the grave, opening another way. Paul calls him the first fruits of them that slept. The first fruits. But you see, because that grave is right here in Joseph's garden, and his cross and burial was a part of the history of this world. And at the same time that his resurrection opened the door into heaven, his work, as it were, straddled heaven and earth. Part of heaven and part of earth. He had one foot in, on earth and one foot in heaven, as it were, when he accomplished his work. And because of that perfect work, that barriers breached forever and ever. And there isn't any power of anyone or anything that can preserve that barrier because of the work of Christ. And so now you see he's ascended into heaven and he's given a position at the right hand of God. And according to Revelation 12, at the moment of his ascension, Satan and his hosts were cast out and the church in heaven breaks forth in a triumphant doxology of praise. Let's take a look at it a moment. Revelation 12. Revelation 12, where really you have the explanation of all that takes place in the history of, of this earth. Notice, you read in, in uh, 
verse 5 of, of Revelation 12, and she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Then you get a brief interlude, and then you, hear, you read, there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought it, and his angels threw out the old testament and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called devil and the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and the angels, his angels, were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them, and so on. What a marvelous event that must have been in heaven when Christ ascended. Daniel 7 writes about that. You can read it in, in, in Daniel 7, verse 14. He was brought to the Ancient of Days. They brought him, Daniel said. They brought him to the Ancient of Days, to the throne of the Ancient of Days. And there was his coronation. Crown was placed on his head. And there were given to him kingdoms and nations and a kingdom which has no end at all. That marvelous event when Christ ascended into heaven. Now, one more thing, and that brings us directly to our topic. Christ, who is eternally appointed by God, is the one through whom God realizes his purpose, is the federal and organic head of the church. Now, you recall when we talked about Adam as the federal and organic head, that I said that Adam's federal headship was based upon his organic headship. Because he was the father of the whole human race, he could represent the human race. With Christ, it's the other way around. Christ is eternally appointed by God to be the federal head of the church, the one who would represent the church, as he did throughout his whole earthly ministry on his cross and in his resurrection. He represented his church. He represented those who had been given to him by God from all eternity so that the work that he did is the work that rightfully and legally belongs to his elect. Our communion form, our, our form for the administration of the Lord's Supper has, I don't, that isn't in this, has that expression in it that he so perfectly suffered the wrath of God against our sins that it was as if we ourselves had suffered the wrath of God for our sins. Our form for Lord's Supper says, it represented us. He died in our place. He did all this as our representative. As in Adam all died. Christ are all made alive. That's the force of Paul's words in that, that doxology in Galatians 1. 
I am crucified with Christ, Paul says. That's my victory. That's my joy. That's my hope. I am crucified with Christ. What does he mean? When Christ was crucified, I was crucified. He represented me. Nevertheless, says Paul, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I am crucified with Christ. If we all fell in Adam, as we did, because we are guilty and responsible for Adam's sin, so also by Christ's perfect work, we are justified and all our sins are forgiven. 2,000 years ago on Calvary, when Christ said, it is finished, your sins and my sins were forever gone. Even though we weren't born yet, they were gone because of Christ's work. He rose again from the dead as our federal head. That's Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How can we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? And then Paul goes on to explain we are buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him into newness of life. How? Because Christ represented me when he died and when he rose again from the dead. And because of that eternal appointment as our federal head, he becomes our organic head. That is, he becomes the head of the church. The head of the church. Ephesians 1. All these marvelous passages are in the first chapter of these epistles. I, I wonder sometimes whether there isn't significance to that. But listen to Ephesians 1, verses 18 and following. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, and so on and so on, that ye may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. That's Ephesians 1. Now, because I say he is the federal head of the church, he is the organic head, and that means that in Christ is revealed the fullness of the life of God. Let's go back here a moment. You recall when God created Adam. God created Adam as the organic head of the human race, but God created Adam too as the organic head of the entire creation. The whole creation was a cosmos, an organism. And the whole creation had its deepest principle of unity in the heart of Adam, so that Adam in turn could serve his God. Now, Christ, Christ, through the resurrection from the dead, Christ is made alive as the everlasting mediator of his people. 
So much so is that true that, that Psalm 2 is even fulfilled at the time of the resurrection, Paul says in, what is it, Acts 17. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Paul says that prophecy of Psalm 2 was fulfilled at the time when Christ arose from the dead. Then God said, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And so Christ is the one in whom is all the life of God, the fullness of the life of God, of God's, as we'll notice next week, God's covenant life, God's covenant life that he lives in himself with which he fills Christ. Or to put it differently, he takes Christ into his own covenant life after the awful abandonment of, of hell on Calvary. And that life of Christ, which fills him, now fills the church, which is chosen in Christ and saved in Christ and made the body of Christ by the wonder of regeneration so that the life of God through Christ becomes that of the church. And Christ and his church is one organism, living organism, Christ and the church. And then finally, and by no means least important, Christ as the source of all life and the church which is his body now also pours out his life into this creation and this creation. And now I have to go back to Colossians 1. Verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, not image bearer of God as Adam was, but himself the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, of every creature. What a strange, strange thing to say. The firstborn of his people, the firstborn of all his brothers and sisters. Yes, yes, yes. First begotten of the dead, yes, the firstborn of every creature. How can he be that? How can he be that? Well, by him were all things created, right from the very beginning. I would almost put it this way, that when God originally created the entire earthly creation, God made from the very outset Christ as the root, so that the whole tree of the human race and the whole tree of the earthly creation was born by the root, which is Christ. That's why, by the way, he's called in Scripture a root out of a dry ground because it looked for all the world throughout the entire 6,000 years of this earthly creation as if that tree of which Christ was the root withered and died. The creation withers and dies it's battered and beaten and abused and destroyed by the wicked world in its efforts to make it the kingdom of Satan. The human race becomes worse and worse and worse and worse. The church becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller that you can't find it anymore. And you say, the whole tree is dead. But he's the root right from the beginning. And finally, that becomes evident. That's what Paul means. By him, he is the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created. 
And then notice, by Him were all things created, not only on earth, but also in heaven. All things that are in heaven and that are on in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, and these are angels, or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him. And for Him. Not only by Him, but for Him. For His benefit. For His glory. For His purpose. For His honor. And He is before all things. And by Him all things consist. Because He's the root. He was from the very beginning. He's the root. All things draw their life out of Him. They don't have any other life than out of Christ. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. And then notice this. And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. That is God. God made peace through the blood of Christ's cross that by Christ God might reconcile all things unto Himself. By Christ, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And that's the text which always makes me stop in wonder and awe. All things were reconciled in heaven and on earth. You know what reconciliation is? Reconciliation means alienation. Alienation. Husband and wife are reconciled. That's because they were alienated. Can't be reconciled unless you're alienated. All were reconciled to God through Christ. He died for them all by the blood of His cross. He died for angels. I mean, elect angels, not devils. Elect angels. He died for the heavenly creation. He died for the elect. He died for the earthly creation. Cosmic. In the greatest, highest, most universal sense of the word, Christ's death is cosmic. How can you understand that? How are the angels alienated? Through the fall of Satan, no doubt. There was no sin in heaven. The angels didn't sin. But there was an alienation. This was so awful that the ripples of it, the tremors of it, reverberated through the whole of the heavenly creation. And there was a certain alienation that was really felt in heaven too until the time of Christ's ascension. All things reconciled to God through Christ. The barrier is broken down. The two are made one. Everything is under Christ, not this under one head and this under another, both of whom fell. But Christ, over all, you see, over all. The one organism. This is why Paul says in Romans 8, the creation groans and travails. Creation knows that Christ died for it. And so the creation is in agony. In agony, as it were, Jesus uses that very term. In agony, as it were, 
by means of the pains of childbirth, laboring to bring forth the new heavens and the new earth. Because Christ is the root, not of the creation that is burned with fire, although essentially that, not of the reprobate, but of the true human race, the human race of election, the creation of which Christ becomes the head in heaven and on earth. And so you have the one organism, you see, the one glorious organism for which Christ died as the, as the, uh, as the federal head and it becomes the organic head. Christ, the church, his body, the angels, the whole new heavens and new earth made one in Christ. The life of God, the life of the one living God, the triune living covenant God, realized, revealed in Christ, and through the Spirit of Christ, who is the giver of all life, of course, poured out upon the church, made his body, to which church the angels become the servants, Hebrews 1. They always have been, but in heaven they are the servants of the saints. And in them all the new heavens and the new earth. One great glorious organism, you see, pervaded by the one life of God through Christ. And all the perfect revelation of God's glory with Christ enthroned at the highest pinnacle of heaven, arrayed in such glory and majesty and power that when you see Christ, you see God himself revealed in Christ. And that glory of God revealed in Christ is a glory that engulfs and swallows up the church and the angels and the whole new creation and all is filled with the glory of God so that through it all, God is praised forever and ever, and the riches of the glory of his infinite being are, are made manifest. That's the organism, the organism that God purposed in Christ. That tree is growing. You can't see it. It looks like it's dying from every earthly point of view throughout all of history, but never mind. Don't worry about it. It's all right. You say the world's getting worse and worse. The creation is being systematically destroyed. Don't worry about it. You say the church is getting smaller and smaller. Don't worry about it. Christ is the root of the tree of this glorious organism. And that tree is going to be shown in all of its glory and beauty when Christ comes again upon the clouds of heaven, Lord of all. Now that's something. That's I stutter. I mumble. I can't say it, but that's something of what it means that Christ is the federal and organic head of all things. Salvation is cosmic. Salvation is, is universal. God so loved the world. Don't let the Arminians steal that word from you. He loved the world and gave his only begotten son. That's this world. This whole world. And that's why you and I can stand here in the creation and say this world is God's. This creation is God's. It's why we must treat it with respect. It's why we must treat our bodies with respect. 
Know ye not that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Ghost? And all this creation is God's. You don't go around raping the creation as the world does. But you treat it with respect because in it are the germs of a new creation. And Christ is the root of it. And he has died for it. Died for lions and tigers and stars and planets and elm trees and all God's vast creation. And it's going to be our inheritance. Now the angels are our nursemaids, if you will. They're the boss. We have to listen to the angels. The angels take us by our hands. The angels watch over us. The angels treat us like the babies that we are, who stumble and bumble around in the world, always putting ourselves in imminent danger of being destroyed. But they're the nursemaids, and when we graduate and are made perfect, then they will still be our nurses, our maids, our servants, because the glory of the church is greater than the glory of the angels. The church was saved through the deep, dark way of sin and death. The angels were not, except in a very limited way. The church was, and therefore the church reveals the riches of the glory of God in a vastly greater way than the angels can. And so it's Christ, the church, the angels, not Christ, the angels, the church. They are our servants, ministers of God for the salvation of the elect. And we shall inherit the earth. We shall. Don't be envious of the wicked, Psalm 37 says. Why are you envious of the wicked? Why do you covet their possessions? Why do you set your heart on all these earthly things? The whole thing is going to be yours someday and it isn't going to be all that long. And you will own it all. And now you're going to fret because you only have a little corner of it? How foolish can you be? Know ye not that the meek shall inherit the earth? All under Christ and Christ as the head. We have a little time for questions. The wonder of it is if I understand what you're saying. The question is this. How are these two merged into a new creation. And the wonder of it is that um, the earthly is made heavenly. It isn't as if these two are merged in such a way that they become something entirely different from either one. But the earthly is made heavenly, we are told in Scripture. Um, that's why... Uh, that's why the Bible is always pointing us to the fact that in this earthly creation, you, you have a picture of the heavenly. You see. That's what makes this creation the wonderful place that it is. Jesus could speak in parables. The Bible is full of metaphors. Christ is the bright morning star. He's the lily of the valley. He's the lion of Judah's tribe. Look at a lion. You see a sign, a picture of Christ. But you can see it wherever you look in the creation. If you don't walk with your nose in the ground or shoved in your wallet so that you can't see anything in the world about you, but if you look and pause to smell the roses, then you could see Christ everywhere in a cocoon. When you're weeding your garden in order that your vegetables may grow, you have a picture of God weeding out this creation by destroying the weeds of the reprobate in order that the church may be saved. Everywhere you look, all these things are done in parables because the earthly is made heavenly. 
there's any relationship between the lack of the Holy Spirit being present in the Old Testament church and this separation of heaven and earth. Well, I suppose in a way, Michael, there is. Uh, you mustn't forget that on Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out upon the church, not only on earth, but in heaven too. The whole church was given the Spirit on Pentecost. But it seems to me that in the Old Testament, the spirit of Pentecost was not given to the whole church because Christ had not yet come. That's in fact exactly what Jesus says or what John says in John 7. Uh, Jesus was in the temple, you recall, and he cried out, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink and out of his belly shall flow forth rivers of living water. And then John adds, as a commentary on that, this spake he of the Spirit, that is, the living water, which Spirit, John says, was not yet, because that Christ was not yet glorified. So the Spirit of Pentecost was the spirit that God gave Christ as the exalted Lord to pour out upon the church by whom all is made one in Christ, by the spirit. That could not be in the Old Testament because Christ had not yet been glorified. And so you had in the Old Testament only Old Testament representations of the spirit in the prophets and priests and kings. If any single doctrine has been a matter of dispute in the Reformed churches, especially in the Netherlands, it is the doctrine of the covenant. The doctrine of the covenant was really first uh, developed in its uh, original form, in its infancy, I suppose one could say, by the Swiss reformers. Swingley and Bullinger, not so much by Calvin, although there is a recent book out published, I think, by Bakers, if I remember correctly, which is devoted completely to Calvin's Doctrine of the Covenant. I haven't had an opportunity to read it yet. It's just off the press. But you might want to get that book. Nevertheless, the Doctrine of the Covenant has its origins in the Swiss theologians Swingley and Bullinger. And they developed the doctrine of the covenant originally in response to the Anabaptist error. I think that in itself is significant. The Anabaptists are called Anabaptists because they believed that anyone who had been baptized in infancy had to be rebaptized upon conversion. And so were called Anabaptists. Over against those, the doctrine of the covenant was developed. I say that's interesting because it points to the fact that the doctrine of the covenant in its very origin had to do with the doctrine of baptism. And the necessity of develop, developing it was in connection with the defense of infant baptism. That doctrine underwent a lot of development and a lot of discussion throughout the history of the Reformed faith in the Netherlands. 
Some theologians in the Netherlands, for example, Hermann Witsius, devoted an entire dogmatics to the doctrine of the covenant. But what's interesting about it is that if you read the history of Dutch theology, beginning with the Synod of Dort, on through the upskating and through the Doliancy under Dr. Abram Kuyper and through the Skilder controversy in the Netherlands that ended in the deposition of Skilder by the Synod of Sneek Utrecht in 1944, the doctrine of the covenant was always a primary doctrine. But in the discussion of the doctrine of the covenant in continental, especially Dutch theology, there was always a certain tension a tension between what appeared oftentimes to be two irreconcilable views. The tension really arose out of the fact that going way back to the Swiss theologians, Swingley and Bullinger, the idea of the covenant had always been defined in terms of what Jeff called a moment ago a compact or a treaty or an agreement between God and man. I'm not sure how that idea originated and why that idea attached itself to the covenant almost from the very inception, but so it did. And it was that idea of the covenant which created a tension in, in Dutch theology. If, for example, you read men who are outstanding covenant theologians like Herman Witsius or Coxeus, then you will discover that although they devoted much of their writings to a development of the doctrine of the covenant, nevertheless they were always stymied somewhat by the doctrines of predestination and the sovereignty of grace in the work of salvation. And as a matter of fact, because of this, they gave oftentimes short shrift to these doctrines that undergird the doctrines of sovereign grace, double predestination. So it was in the upskating. The upskating was weak on the doctrine of the covenant because the theologians of the upskating gave themselves over almost completely to this idea of a covenant as a, an agreement between God and man you can readily see that if the covenant is defined in terms of an agreement between God and man, it's difficult to maintain in harmony with the idea of the covenant, the doctrine of predestination and the sovereignty of grace. Because just as soon as you define the covenant as an agreement, you give to man a certain role in the establishment of the covenant and in the maintenance of the covenant as well. Man has obligations. You can't have an agreement without having two parties that enter into an agreement, and the agreement will only remain in effect as long as the two parties remain faithful to the stipulations and conditions of the agreement. And so these theologians, even though oftentimes reformed, nevertheless struggled with the problem. How are we going to integrate a genuine Calvinism, a genuine doctrine of the sovereignty of grace with the idea of the covenant? Because the two seem to be riding on parallel tracks. 
On the other hand, there were theologians in the Dutch tradition who emphasized strongly the doctrines of predestination and the sovereignty of grace. I refer to such men, for example, as Turretin, Francis Turretin, whose three-work theology has only recently been published in English. And while he certainly emphasized as strongly as anyone in the Dutch tradition the doctrines of double predestination and sovereign grace in the work of salvation, the covenant received short shrift. He didn't seem to know what to do with it. And it's almost as if the doctrine of the covenant is relegated to a kind of a, a footnote in his theology. And the reason for that, again, is obvious. The reason is simply this, that if you maintain with uh, conviction and with uh, consistency the doctrines of grace, and you come to the doctrine of the covenant and you're faced with the idea of a covenant that involves some participation of man, some involvement of man, some significant and important involvement, on the basis of which the covenant exists, it seems to conflict, and indeed it does, with the doctrines of grace. In later covenantal development in the Netherlands and in America, the ideas of the covenant as an agreement with its consequent uh, human element in the establishment and maintenance of it were almost universally adopted in the Reformed churches. And in large measure, that was through the work of a professor in Calvin College, first of all, and later on in Calvin Seminary, by the name of William Haynes. He wrote a manual of Reformed doctrine, which has been translated into English. It's worth reading just to get an idea of how thoroughly Arminian this idea of the covenant as an agreement really was. But Heinz had enormous influence. He taught an entire generation of Christian reform ministers, and he taught an entire generation of Christian school teachers. Reverend Huxma also studied under Dr. Heinz, and when Reverend Huxma as his daughter-in-law relates in the autobiography of him, in the biography of him, when Huxma sat under Heinz and heard his presentation of the covenant, Huxma reacted in this fashion. That can't be it. Such an Arminian conception of the covenant simply cannot be the teaching of Scripture. But at the same time, Reverend Huxma did not know in which direction to go, did not know what the doctrine of the covenant was. It is my conviction that the Lord has given to our churches the unique position in the church world which he has by virtue of the doctrine of the covenant because of the work of Reverend Huxma. I consider it... Uh, such a blessed gift, such a immeasurably wonderful gift of doctrine that if Reverend Huxma had done nothing else, 
in his entire ministry and in his entire career as professor of theology in the Protestant Reformed Seminary, but give to us the doctrine of the covenant, it would have been worth a lifetime of labor. He gave us much more, as you know. Gave us much more in his preaching from the pulpit and in his reformed dogmatics and in his triple knowledge, by the way, if you want really to know what Huxma's theology is all about, then you have to read the triple knowledge. Much You can find out much more than from his reformed dogmatics even. But be that as it may, it was his doctrine of the covenant which is, it was the, the amazing contribution which he made. Huxma's genius, I would say, except of course that God used him for that purpose. You see, what happened was, Huxma was fully conscious of the fact that there was always this tension in Reformed theology between covenantal theology and the doctrines of sovereign grace. A tension that could not be resolved, a tension that no single theologian had succeeded in resolving in all the history of the Dutch churches from the time of the Reformation there until the time of the schism of 1944. What Huxma did was discover through solid exegesis and study of the scriptures, change the definition of the covenant from being in its essential character, an agreement or a compact or a treaty, to a living relationship of friendship and fellowship. He gave to the idea of the covenant a fundamentally different idea. And he pointed out in no uncertain terms that you will not find in Scripture that strange notion that crept into theology of the covenant as being an agreement between two parties. But what you do find is the all-pervasive idea that runs like a golden thread through Scripture that the covenant is a relationship of friendship between God and his people in Christ. Now, I don't know if Huxma was original in that regard. You can go all the way back to Olivianus, one of the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, and find in his work on the Heidelberg Catechism the idea of the covenant as a relationship of friendship. And you can find the same idea in Coxeus. Interestingly enough, although Coxeus came perilously close to denying infant baptism and was charged with being, in fact, dispensational in his thinking, nevertheless, he had in his theology the idea of the covenant as a bond of friendship. You find the same thing in Bavink to a certain extent, in his Reformed dogmatics, which are now in the process of being translated. And Danhoff, Henry Danhoff, who with Reverend Huxman and Reverend Opoff was deposed from office by the Christian Reformed Church, you find the same idea. But no one, no one saw that it was the fundamental idea of the covenant. They always spoke of it in terms of a bond of friendship and fellowship, but never developed it and never abandoned the idea of the covenant as an agreement between God and man. 
And so there was a kind of a, an ambiguity about it, a kind of halting between two opinions with the idea of a, an agreement winning out. Where Reverend Hooksma finally got his idea, I don't know. He was well-versed in, in Dutch theology, and it may be that the Lord used some writing from Coxeus or Bobbing to spark the thought in his mind that the whole concept of the covenant had to be re-examined. And so he did. He did. The doctrine, the development of the doctrine of the covenant in Reverend Hooksma's life began very early. You can find the... the uh, the seminal ideas of it in his book, Van Sonde en Genade, of Sin and Grace, which I have mentioned before, which was published in 1923. But you will not find a single place in Huxima's writings where the doctrine of the covenant is fully developed in one continuous line. You cannot turn to a chapter in the dogmatics and say, chapter so-and-so under locus so-and-so is the chapter in which Huxma develops his entire idea of the covenant. There is a, a chapter there on the, uh, the Pacem Salutis, on the covenant of peace, but that's all. And here and there, scattered, of course, through his through the Reformed dogmatics, other writings. The same is true of the triple knowledge. The same is true of all his other books. But perhaps where the covenant is most developed is in his book, Believers and Their Seed. Although even there, the emphasis was, of course, on, on the doctrine of uh, the place of infants in the covenant. Why was that? Why is it that Huxman never wrote one work in which he laid out his whole idea of the covenant. He often said to us in school, for example, it would be possible to write an entire dogmatics from the viewpoint of the covenant. And I think he would have liked to do that too. But you won't find the work in which his whole covenant view is expounded in one place because it was an ongoing development that continued almost his entire life, but reached its climax in the uh, schism of 1953, when he was confronted four square with the liberated heresy of the covenant, and when it constituted a threat to the existence of our Protestant Reformed churches. Then the whole development of the covenant reached, as it were, the climax in his thinking. But by that time, he was too old to put it all down on paper. And so, if you are to spell it out, you have to go through all his writings. But what I want to emphasize tonight is this, that by redefining the covenant as a bond of friendship between God and his people in Christ, he solved the ambiguity and resolved the tension that had existed in Dutch theology from the Synod of Dordogne. He could be a covenant theologian and 
the whole doctrine of predestination, double predestination, and all the doctrines of sovereign grace fit beautifully in the whole organic framework of the truth. If you looked at the covenant, not from the viewpoint of an agreement, but as a bond of friendship and fellowship, God establishes his covenant by taking his people through Christ into his own covenant fellowship. God maintains his covenant sovereignly and graciously by the power of his spirit as the spirit of Christ in the hearts of his people. God realizes it in all the full glory of covenant fellowship with him in the age which is to come. You see, just as soon as you can get rid of the ideas of the covenant as an agreement, the tension is gone, the, the, the tension is resolved, and the whole doctrine of grace, sovereign grace, beginning in election, is related to the covenant in a beautiful fashion. That's what Huxma has done for the Protestant Reformed churches. I marvel. I know we may worship a man, and I give thanks to God for Reverend Huxema. I do. I don't. I knew him too personally to worship the man. I studied under him and knew him on very intimate terms. Knew him at his best, knew him at his worst. So I, there's no temptation to worship the man. But it is a marvelous thing that God used him for something so crucially important. Because the covenant of grace is not a doctrine that lies on the periphery of the Reformed faith, but as has become obvious through 480 years of Dutch history, it is at the very heart of all theology. And that's because theology has to do with salvation. God's work of salvation in the salvation of the church. And what is salvation? Salvation is God taking his elect people into his own covenant fellowship. That's our heritage. That's why 1953 was a, a fight, a quarrel, a, a battle that involved the very existence of the Protestant Reformed churches. There isn't any question in my mind about that at all. We had given in to Skilderian covenantal theology and had allowed those who had adopted it in our churches to have their way with us. If we had even tolerated that position as a viable option within our churches, we would have lost everything the Protestant Reformed churches have ever stood for. All right, let's close. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for the great great works which thou dost perform far, far beyond our understanding. Works of power, works of glory, works hidden from the foundation of the world, works which only thou couldst plan in thy eternal counsel, which could only be conceived in the minds of an eternal and infinite God, works which reveal thy glory in majestic and powerful ways, but works which wonder of wonders 
embrace us, poor sinners, in our salvation. In Jesus Christ, thy Son. And make us like unto thyself and like unto the image of thy Son. Works which glorify us, redeem us, reconcile us unto thee. Works which transform us so that we ourselves in perfection, in body and soul, are the means by which the great glory of thee, the living God, is revealed. And works which shall bring us into thy covenant fellowship forever and ever, world without end. May we rejoice in these works. May we rejoice in the great, great blessedness thou hast given to us. And may we bow in worship and adoration and praise before the throne of thy Son, Jesus Christ, exalted in the heavens, great and glorious, but our Savior and Lord. Forgive all our sins, our sins tonight, our sins of feeble understanding, our sins of not giving thee the glory that ought to be given by us to thee, our sins that cleave to us in all that we do, and make us holy like unto thyself. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.